And uh, education is the largest investment that we make as a society. Um, and there's a reason for that. Our education is who we are. And I think we've gotten to a place um, where because we have disagreements about who we want to be, um, we've abdicated our responsibility to our young people to help. On the Learning Future podcast, we discuss the knowledge, skills, and dispositions we all need for our learning future, exploring insights with world-class educators, researchers, policymakers, and leaders from across industries and across the world. Hello, and welcome to the Learning Future podcast. I'm your host, Luca Parry, and today I'm speaking with David Adams. David Adams is the Chief Executive Officer of the Urban Assembly. He started with the Urban Assembly in 2014 as the Director of Social Emotional Learning, where he created the Resilient Scholars Program, a unique approach to integrating social emotional learning into curriculum and classroom practices across the UA network. Resilient Scholars Program has grown into a national program serving schools and districts in Los Angeles, Houston, Syracuse, and other cities. David also sits on the board of Castle and is an author of The Educator's Practical Guide to Emotional Intelligence and a co-author of the textbook, Challenges to Integrating Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Programs in Organization. He is also a civil affairs officer in the Army Reserve and holds a Master's of Education in Educational Psychology from Fordham University. David, what a pleasure to be speaking with you again. Luca, thank you for having me. Ah, it's gonna be a delightful conversation. What is something that you've been learning recently? Well, Luca, uh, first I want to say that the, pre the people who teach me the most are my kids. And uh, one of the things I learned recently from my kids, for anybody who watches Dragon Ball Z, um, is apparently Ultra Instinct has other levels uh, with regards to Goku's kind of reaction to the world. Uh, so I spent a lot of time listening to my kids talk about all the different iterations of uh, the same uh, approach. And uh, that's one thing I've been learning from my kids. Uh, with regards to more broadly in education, I've been really, uh, really interested recently in, in really understanding the notion of how public schools uh, are used to pursue and navigate and create the common good. Um, so I'm reading this book called uh, Pursuing the, the Common Good in Education. Um, and it's, a, it's really a history book that talks about uh, the the relationship was called common schools, how, how and why they were created in the United States in the context of democracy, um, approaches to democracy, uh, reconstruction, um, what mm -hmm. uh, the Union Army did in the context of formerly enslaved peoples, um, and the role that education played in um, bringing those folks into a notion of citizenship and vis-a-vis -vis the relationship with the state, mm -hmm. um, and goes all the way up into uh, desegregation in 1954, and um, some of the legal challenges to uh, um, not busing people across district lines. Um, so yeah, that's been something that's really interesting to me, particularly as we look in uh, the pandemic. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's so many folks who are saying things like, you know, my child learns math or science or uh, English better from home, right? And it just caused a question like, what is the purpose of education? What is the mm -hmm. founding purpose of, of our public schools and how we use them? That just just the uh, the superficial questions obviously david you know the, uh, the the pandemic really has it's kind of revealed to us you know not just the gaps and the cracks but ultimately you know in sometimes the, the kind of mental model that underpins so much of our modern education systems and in fact our entire economy and society take us into the big idea that you've been exploring i mean and i'd, I'd love you to start by also sharing you know, who the Urban Assembly is and, and what it is you do powerfully um, there in the United States. 
Well, that is a great question. Uh, and uh, one that I would expect from someone uh, like you, Luca. Um, so thank you for setting that up because the Urban Assembly is a remarkable organization. I'm very proud to lead it. Uh, we are a network of 23 district schools in New York City. Um, and our job is to enhance the economic and social mobility of young people uh, by improving public education. So that means um, we develop and innovate within these district schools around things like social emotional learning, post-secondary readiness, which is about college and career. And as we like to say, college, career, and community. Mm -hmm. um, we are invested in leadership development and academics. Um, and we take these innovations in from our schools and we spread them across the whole country. Right? So we're doing work in Los Angeles and Texas. We're doing work in Michigan. Uh, we just did a, a professional development in Jamaica. Uh, it was virtual, but we believe we're going to get there in person. <laughs> it's going to so be funny. part of that next contract, right? We're not doing this. We don't get to Jamaica. So okay. uh, our, I think our calling card is that we move from uh, what questions to how questions. Right. Uh, we've spent so much time in education saying, like, what should we be doing? Uh, we know what we should be doing. Uh, the question is how? How do we look at the constraints that have been uh, built into the system um, and then operate around those constraints to innovate and serve our young, young people better? So um, that's the urban assembly. We're innovating within public education. Uh, we like to say that we set the standard, then we raise the bar. Um, and I'm very proud to be the CEO of this organization with regards to what we do on behalf of our young people. Wow. David, the model sounds really powerful. And I love the fact that it's, the, the, well, the third C that you added to that, you know, of community. And it seems to me, you know, there is this impact that we are seeing even now in the pandemic, you know, as a broader stroke. You know, we've realized, funnily enough, that we're all in this together. If we ever thought that we weren't before, now it's really been driven home. Uh, what is it that you're discovering in, in the kind of innovative work that you're doing across these schools? that you know, other educators can learn from? You know, how is it that you create, for example, the conditions for innovation even to take place in sometimes communities where they, so there are so many constraints or educators feel that they are time poor because there seems to be more and more expectations put on them? Well, what, what kind of reflections would you offer here? Well, first, um, and this is not going to be like lofty. Uh, this is really practical, technical stuff. Um, there, are, there are time constraints, and it is the most uh, salient constraint in education is time and teacher time and how it's used. Um, and so one of the things I'm really excited about when we look at these challenges, these problem sets, right, is like we think, all right, how do we use technology, for example, to act on, to action, uh, to move around, under, through, over, uh, this constraint of teacher time, right? Um, and so some of the things that we've been thinking about here are the use of artificial intelligence, um, how artificial intelligence can be used to save time on things like teacher feedback. Um, we think about technology around our social emotional learning program. Um, and there the constraint was being able to really conceptualize uh, social and emotional learning in ways that integrate with instructional practices, behavioral supports and extracurricular activities. Uh, this was a conceptual problem set Mm. Um, and then we actioned that by really giving really good quality frames so that people could uh, go from zero uh, to 15, which is the hardest thing to do, mm -hmm. uh, get off the bed and start running um, yeah, yeah. and action that work. So, you know, I mean, I think the one thing that makes us really special is that we have been given this opportunity by the Department of Education to start these schools, these 23 schools. 
Um, and so we are like all up in their business, right? And we are watching what happens in these schools. And we are really considerate around these constraints of uh, what is stopping a school from doing the thing, for example, the research says, or doing the thing that's the best practice. And usually it's not a knowledge gap. It's not like I woke up in the morning and didn't think this was not important, or even a will gap. It's not that I don't want to do it. Um, sometimes it's a state policy. Sometimes it's a, a municipal policy. Sometimes it's a, a union challenge. Uh, but all these things are opportunities. Mm. These things are opportunities to understand how we can bring value to the public education space. Uh, so I'm very excited about that work. I think that um, mm, wow. we do some great problem solving and uh, we create some great solutions. Um, and those solutions bring value to our young people. I'm interested in your, I mean, obviously your path is within the field of social emotional learning in particular. Because I, I would say it seems from my vantage point that so much of the world is now focused on SEL or on life skills. Uh, so again, we could focus so much on the what they are without getting into the how. So can you share a little bit about, you know, how do you integrate these, these human skills into the way that the 23 schools function? Well, the first thing I would say, um, and this is like one of the big aha moments I had five, six years ago, thinking about this work, um, is that we don't need to frame this as like implementing a social and emotional learning program. Mm. Uh, we need to frame it as elevating the social and emotional dimensions of learning, right? Because every school impacts the social emotional outcomes of young people. The question is the intentionality and towards what end, right? So what we do is we start out and we say, show me your instructional practices. Um, and we say, okay, well, you know, we have a couple of different social emotional outcomes, things like relationship skills and decision-making. Um, how can we look at these uh, instructional practices in a way that we can really name and enumerate those social and emotional outcomes? So one of the, the big things folks are doing are turn into talks or question and discussion techniques, mm -hmm. right? And so we spend a lot of time saying, all right, a turn and talk activates the social emotional skill of communication and relationship skills. Uh, what would it take to make that, move that from an implicit to an explicit aim? And schools are like, you know, it wouldn't take that much. All we need to do is add uh, maybe a quick debrief that's both uh, looking at the process and the content, right? Because uh, perspective taking, which is another social emotional outcome, right? Uh, can be developed if we actively listen, social emotional skill during a turn and talk. Um, and that's the kind of work that we do. We talk about the direct construction of these skills, like how do you teach perspective taking? Mm. Uh, then how do you activate it? How do you practice it? Um, and then we realize as you look in schools that every single school uh, in every single place in every single country uh, is already impacting the social and emotional outcomes of their young people. Um, and, and we help schools figure out what that looks like, what they want it to look like and move mm. from implicit to intentional impact. That's fantastic. And what about the role of the, the educators in this as well? You know, there's kind of, and I love, I love this distinction um, because of the, pro, the, you know, there is this programmatic, like buy the, buy the box off the shelf and it will work for you, you know, um, as opposed to saying, you know, these, this is happening already, but how do we elevate and make more explicit, you know, the social emotional dimensions of, of learning alongside the cognitive dimension, of course. And you can even <laughs> talk about the physical dimension of learning and, you know, having young people move. And then we start to talk about, you know, overall performance and overall well-being, which I think are really critical ways to frame this. 
where do adults fit in, in, this, in this space as well? How do we support ourselves to elevate our own dimensions of, uh, of learning and performance? Well, there's two things I want to say on this. Uh, first, Luke, uh, I, want to, I want to extend uh, the comment that you made and build on that, that notion, right? Because mm. you have the dimensions, social-emotional dimensions, and you have the social-emotional outcomes of learning, right? And these are the things that are really more explicitly focused on this notion of community ready. Uh, what, what kind of young people um, do we expect to graduate from our public institutions with regards to how to interact with themselves in society? Mm. Um, so you have things that are focused on the dimensions of learning, right? Which is uh, how do I learn things that I'm already learning in the context of the social and emotional learning framing? Um, and then there are just the things like how, what are my feelings and thoughts and understanding about how to communicate or how to take perspective or how to be in conflict that's constructive versus destructive? Um, so that's the one thing that, that, that I wanted to put out in, in that mm. context as well is the, um, the dual roles of social emotional development, which is uh, learning, uh, but also outcomes. Mm. Yeah, I love that. Uh, take us into, because like, I, I think often we seem so focused on outcomes in schools or achievement, the achievement paradigm seems so pervasive. Sure. And of course, like yeah. when we look across all school systems, we've just, it's just a truism that we've just been better at measuring ac- cognitive outcomes, academic outcomes, sure. ones that are framed yeah. narrow, you know, remembering the lower levels of Bloom's taxonomy, for example. Uh, so, I mean, this also picks up a piece around measurement, which I'd love you to comment on as well. Like how do we, you know, how do we elevate that, that space? Yeah. Let's go back to the 1950s and 1960s, right? Um, so, all right, what had happened is prior in psychology, you had Freud, right? And you had Freudian psychoanalysis. Mm-hmm. Um, and Freudian psychoanalysis was the first time in psychology folks had really thought about this notion of an unconscious or a conscious. Um, and particularly in the European side of the house, it really... Um, set off a large amount of literature that had really focused on these internal and unobservable aspects of the psychological dimensions of people. Um, and then the United States, right, practical folk, uh, you mm-hmm. know, starting in 1940s, they said, you know, we're, we're done with this. Uh, and they shifted to this behavioral model, right, and said, look, if you can't see it, we can't measure it, it doesn't exist, right? And so uh, between like 1940s and the 1960s, there's this like really big focus on things like eye blanks and reinforcement techniques. Um, and one of the key things I think in this, this history uh, is uh, what could be seen was measured, uh, which is different than what mattered, right? Yeah. Uh, what mattered in the human dimension, what mattered in uh, the, the, the psychological understanding of who we are uh, was less important than what could be measured, right? And this was a reaction to Freud. We get it, right? Young, young and thinking all these pieces, right? And then you have this guy come up into Alfred Bandura and he's like in the 1960s, right? And he's like, wow, there are different understandings of learning. Um, and he starts to talk about how modeling and social modeling helps uh, people learn, right? Not just reinforcement techniques and starts to talk about uh, the cognitive aspects of learning. And he starts to uh, set off this cognitive rev- revolution, Right, in which folks are starting to think about uh, what are the cognitive aspects of, of, of learning and also in the psychological state. And, and so, right, for the last uh, couple of decades, we've been really focused on cognition and, and mm. the role cognition plays in understanding uh, processes and human processes. And I, I, I tell this quick history uh, to illustrate the, the relationship between measurement um, and importance. Right. When we were able to start measuring now uh, 
processes that are happening in the brain uh, through top topographical imaging techniques, right? Like when we're able to actually measure things, people are more interested in them. Um, but it doesn't mean that what we couldn't measure wasn't important. Uh, so to the context of social emotional learning and social emotional development, if you look at a um, if you look at a report card from let's say 1910, you're going to see character traits on that report card. You're going to see uh, was the student um, uh, what would they say? Did they clean their nails? Uh, did they show up on time? Right. Uh, if you look at Ben Franklin, his writing about what the role of schools and the importance of schools. If you look at um, formerly enslaved people in terms of reconstruction and what they talked about in terms of virtues. Um, and the relationship between learning virtues and being part of, of the school of public schools and common schools. Um, this current configuration of our schools is the anomaly uh, when it comes to emphasizing the purely cognitive dimensions of learning. Uh, because it doesn't come you know, with standardized test scores and doesn't uh, kind of go up and down um, in, in a really kind of uh, consistent manner, uh, we have de-emphasized it. Um, and that's a failure of our education system, um, not a failure of our kids. Um, and so we actually, you know, at the Urban Assembly have been looking at measuring social emotional skills for a long time, uh, not because I think that that's the only way to uh, understand them, but because I think it's easier to communicate what you measure, the construct. Um, we use language not only to identify and communicate what's important, um, but also to show what's important to communicate about, right? So like when there's a word for something, um, not only can we communicate it, but we also identified that, that that's a thing that's worth communicating. Mm -hmm. uh, so we've looked at measurement and we've looked at um, students having the ability to debrief and, and um, take insight and uh, give feedback on their social emotional development uh, as a way to construct a frame in their mind. Um, a way to manipulate the concept, in this case, social emotional learning, uh, in ways that empower them to do the things that they want to do. So uh, the measurement thing has been important to me. Um, there's been there's discrepancies in the field. Should we just only measure school climate? Uh, should social emotional skills be graded? Um, what I will say hmm. uh, is that social emotional skills are already graded. Uh, if you look at uh, what a grade is, um, and what goes into a grade, uh, you have the academic habits, things like that, mm. um, that are incorporated into that grade, if not explicitly, then implicitly. There's a lot of research around that. And so what I would rather do is give kids a better chance. I would rather be explicit with kids. I'd rather be honest and open mm. um, and say, here are the social emotional dimensions that we think are important. We're going to teach them to you. We're going to give you feedback. I'm going to give you an opportunity to empower yourselves with these concepts. Mm. Gosh, that's brilliant, David. Uh... Oh, I'm learning so much, really. Just and and that piece around the psychology and the measurement, uh, which I think is just also just aligned with the way that economies have also been shaped and societies at large. I mean, education in some ways is just a function of an of an economy, mm. um, which is a reductionist view to which I don't subscribe. <laughs> but you know, there's so much more than that. Um, I, I'd love you to talk about about teachers. Uh, and about mm -hmm. leaders and, and about the culture and the climate of, of a learning community, uh, be that in a single school or be that a network of schools. You know, what is it that we, we can do as leaders to support the development of the adults in our learning institutions so that they then don't just explicitly talk about these skills but also model them through who they are as well as what they do and what they say? 
Well, going to our boy, uh, Albert Bender, who just recently passed away. So uh, God rest his soul. Yeah. Um, he came up with this theory of efficacy, right? Uh, self-efficacy was uh, the concept. And he came up with four uh, ways to develop efficacy. Um, and one of the key ways was to see models of uh, the skill or the concept that you were trying to develop um, in front of you on a consistent basis. Mm-hmm. So the idea is that efficacy is uh, the belief in your ability to accomplish something. Right. And one of those aspects is, is prior experience. Like what experience do you have that tells you you can do this thing? Right. Um, and another one is your models or who is in front of you, who reminds you of yourself that demonstrate this thing is possible. Right. Um, and so on the one hand, right. Our teachers need to be really clear about the role that they're playing in modeling social and emotional outcomes and competencies for young people. Uh, they are an integral part of young people's development. I just talked to my uh, my band teacher from when I graduated high school. He's like, oh, would you come talk to my my students? Well, you know, he's over the whole district. And um, and I and I told him, you know, I remember you told me something. You told me about I was I was a clarinetist, and uh, he told me a story, or he told me something. He said the the, the guy next to you, uh, he, he's a very good clarinetist, but. The reason why he's better than you is he makes a mistake one week and then comes back and corrects it. David, you make the same mistake three weeks in a row uh, until you get yourself together. And I told him that story because like, right, like, you know, I tell my kids and one of the things that motivates me now is like make new mistakes, right? Don't make the same mistake, learn quickly. And he's like, I don't even remember I told you that thing, right? Uh, But but I remember. And like he's got thousands of kids, right? And I'm sure each of those 1,000, 20,000 kids are, has a story of something he said or did that, that impacted their view of themselves, their ability to see themselves improving over time. So to answer your question, the first thing is um, modeling social emotional skills matters to young people. And then secondly, we just published an article um, in IGI Global. Uh, it's focused on instructional interactions and social emotional competencies from teachers. Um, so even if I did this with Dr. Lawrence Farmer and Dr. Bridget Hamry, uh, even if uh, you don't really think social emotional learning is an important outcome of the education system or social emotional competence, I should say, uh, even if, you know, you think that the only thing that a teacher is responsible for is math and science, social emotional skills on behalf of teachers matter. Uh, when teachers are able to take the perspective of students, for example, they're able to generate uh, assignments that are more relevant to students' lives. Mm. Uh, when teachers are paying attention to social cues of students, for example, they're able to pace their lessons in a ways uh, that keeps the, the the lesson at the zone of proximal development, not too high, not too low, being able to respond effectively in real time. Mm. Um, when teachers are able to uh, manage their emotions, uh, they're better able to manage the classroom, right? Um, with regards to interacting uh, with students in ways that are biased towards high quality interactions, right? Positive interactions. Um, and so these things, even at the very basic teaching level, and this is what the article is about, looks at these social emotional competencies and really lays them down to these instructional practices. Um, when you're giving feedback to a student, for, I'll give you one last one. Mm. Uh, the highest quality feedback is a feedback from the perspective of the learner, right? And when you watch teachers yeah. who are really skilled instructors and they're paying attention to misconceptions from the learners, they're doing it because they really understand what the student was thinking and how that contributed to their challenges or the misconception about the material. Mm. Teachers who really struggle, uh, really struggle to really see the lesson from the perspective of the learner. 
Mm. That's that's a social and emotional skill. That's perspective taking. Um, so it's not just about behavior management, although it really strongly impacts behavior management, right? It's also about instructional techniques. Yeah. So I would answer the question here to say that number one, uh, social emotional learning matters for teachers because you model it for your young people and young people are not going to do what you say. They're going to do what you watch, they watch you do. Um, and then number two, uh, being a great teacher is about being social emotionally skilled. Um, it's about paying attention to your students. It's about giving feedback that's meaningful. Uh, it's about pacing your course in your class in ways that are responsive to student needs. Um, and, and that's about social and emotional skill sets as well. Mm. I just find it so inspiring just to think of your band teacher and, you know, the thousands of young people that, that he has chosen to impact in a mm-hmm. powerful way. And, you know, I think this is one of the magic things about being in education, David, is that you just don't know where the ripples go, you know, like in, you know, in the, in the flow of a lesson, which is always dynamic and complex, you know, in the human development, you know, we all say things. Uh, and it's amazing that we, you know, that, that beautiful, uh, I think it's a Juno quote where, uh, you know, we can either choose to human, dehumanize or to humanize, to kind of disempower mm-hmm. or to uplift. And that's the challenge for each of us is to try to be that person all the time. Um, yeah. I also just, with your reflection, I wonder how many of the inspirational teachers that all of us would think about, I mean, there, there must be just an enormous correlation between how they were able to take our perspective and focus on our learning, not their teaching. That's right. Focus uh, on their teaching. Come on, Luca. Yeah. Come on. <laughs> Preach it. That's, that's the bottom line, right? Like, yeah. you've heard teachers be like, I've taught it, but they didn't learn it. Yeah. Great teachers are focused on student learning. Mm. And, they, and they're really paying attention to how the concepts that they're presenting are, are interacting with what students already know, mm. right? What they want to know and how they're interacting with what they need to know in that, that context in that period. Mm. Um, you can't teach well if you don't know your students. And this is not like this like lofty idealist thing. It's, it's literally brain science, right? Integrating yeah. knowledge goes into people's pre-existing understandings of a concept or a schema. So the better you know your kids, the better oriented new information is to what they already know, connected to that prior knowledge so they can integrate it in a way that allows them to really play around with that idea mm. um, and make it their own. So, I mean, I, I, <laughs> it's like not that lofty. You know, I, I'm about changing the world. I'm about making sure that our kids are community ready yeah. Uh, contribute to their their neighborhoods and their schools, uh, but I'm also about great teaching, and great teaching is grounded in, in high quality social emotional skills. Mm. Oh, that feels like a mic drop moment there, David. To be honest, oh, so many, so many great ones. Uh, take us into the future, David. You know, if we're having this conversation, which I hope we are in ten years' time, what do you really hope? What you know, what do we hope we we have done in education around the world, you know, from this kind of the global education reform movement of high stakes examinations, for example, that, you know, colleagues like Parsi Salberg talk about, uh, you know, it feels like we are on the cusp of something here if we do this mm. right, you know, bringing mm-hmm. out a, a, like a flourishing human era, even going beyond that, you know, a biocollective to realise, oh, actually, we also live within an ecosystem that we need to pay attention to lest uh, we also destroy that. Um, what do you, if we look into the future and we visit it as we need to as educators, what do, you, what do you see as the possibility that we can create? 
Well, first, uh, I'd say your beard goes lightly gray, like a salty kind of uh, uh, relationship there. Not totally gray, <laughs> just enough to show your wisdom. A little bit of salt know? and pepper is going to be good. Yeah, a little salt and pepper. I don't lose right? the hair. Yeah. <laughs> no, the 10 years from now, Luca is still Luca. You, know, you still walk into a room and people say, what's up? Um, so that's the first thing I'd say. And uh, secondly, we're going to be in conversation. We're going to be in collaboration. Uh, we're going to be thinking about uh, our contribution, our worthiness with regards to the legacy that's been given us mm. um, and what it means to give that legacy to our children and our uh, progeny. Um, with regards to education, you know, uh, 10 years, I really see us understanding the relationship between um, these broader understandings of being educated, uh, collaboration, um, being able to infuse and synthesize information uh, in order to make decisions. I mean, I really see us moving from this very explicit content uh, focus um, to this larger understanding that the purpose of education is not only to know, but to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and this question of who do we wanna be, right? Um, look, at the end of the day, when you're looking at these conversations about vaccination or not vaccination or masks or not masks, uh, it's not that people are dumb uh, per se. Uh, it's that they have strong feelings about things and feelings influence what we think and they influence how we think and how we uh, construct arguments. Um, and so the social and emotional components of this education system um, would be honored, right? Um, mm. and, and we would look at our education system like when, when folks are struggling to make arguments in, in civic spaces, right, in public spaces, and they're saying, you know, I agree or I disagree, we would say, you know, I contributed to that, right? Right now, we just like, is the, the person graduate? Do they not graduate, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Can they do algebra? Can they do algebra? Uh, instead, like when when policemen uh, deescalate effectively in in a, in a in an interaction, you know, our teacher would be like, yeah, you know, I I, I played a I played a role in that. I taught them if when we're at the dinner table and, and there are different perspectives being shared and somebody is constructive and facilitating this in a way that builds instead of destroys. Uh, we take a picture of it and we're like, send it to our second grade teacher. And we're like, hey, look, we're doing the thing that you said, right? That, that being educated is about learning to be in community. Mm. Um, the content that we have, like all these things are about giving our skills and, our, and ourselves to our community. They're not means or excuse me, not ends within themselves. Um, so those are the things I, that I aspire to, you know, I look at my kids, um, I look at how they're relating to themselves in the world. Um, I look at the, the, this generation and, um, I think we need, we can refine, refine, uh, the will to pursue a common good. Mm. Um, one of the things that's amazing to me, Luca, is like, we, we're so excited about a vaccine, right? And all the science and people are like, wow, like we have really come very far in our Mm -hmm. science, right? Like turn that thing around like 18 months, right? Yeah. And it turned out that's like not the problem set. That's the most challenging uh, of the situation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) The problem set was not like, how do we do this amazing thing with these little microscopic uh, uh, organisms? The problem set is like, how do we convince people to contribute to the larger space? and overcome some challenges either uh, in terms of their feelings or in terms of their thoughts to contribute to that space. Mm. Um, 
And the first one, the latter, right, the, the virus and the vaccine, that's the one that's honored today, right? Like, oh, my school produced blah, 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 blah. Uh, but the second one is, is less so. Schools are less likely to say my school produced a person who helped us pursue a common good and helped us to build bridges in the social yeah. context, help us to come together. Um, and what I expect in 10 years and what I'm working for, because uh, I don't expect what I'm not working for. <laughs> That's uh, correct. Yeah. I expect that to happen. I expect us to honor that and to say public schools are about uh, what we do to pursue a common sense of who we are. Um, and that's just as important as, uh, the math and science and all the English in the world. Wow. It feels like it's the most important thing of which the maths and science are all sub components that contribute to who we are. I mean, it really, it's David, you speak so beautifully and just imagine if like, what would world be if we shifted from we are what we do or we are what we know to we are who we are. And then, of course, the components mm-hmm. of that is what we do and what we know. You know, I really mm-hmm. think this is kind of almost a return back to those, that era of character, you know. Mm-hmm. You know, educating the mind without educating the heart is no education at all, as Martin Luther King said. You know, so I really, I mean, I've, I can feel the passion in me and certainly in you as well with the, the work you do and, and the trail that you're blazing and really the enabler that you are as well. It's been well, we one- would agree to this, Luca, right? It's, it is one thing that <laughs> we would agree. <laughs> we we set this up a little bit, right? We're not too far away a little in bit, terms completely. of uh, our values around the world. Yeah, that's true. But uh, you're, it's just really inspiring to to reconnect with you, David, after two years in which the world itself has completely transformed. Um, and so, I'd love, I'd love you to share some some final words with us. What is what is your take home message? Uh, from the work that you're doing, from the person you are choosing to be uh, in the world every day? Uh, well, look, you know, um, I read this uh, statistic and um, it's maybe surprising. I'm not even sure it's 100% correct. <laughs> but uh, in the context of the United States, um, when you uh, combine municipal at the town level, um, state and federal taxes, and education is the largest investment that we make as a society. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is the largest investment that we make as a society. Um, and there's a reason for that. Our education is who we are, as you said. Um, and I think we've gotten to a place um, where because we have disagreements about who we want to be, um, we've abdicated our responsibility to our young people to help to guide them into who they can be. Um, so I, I would just call us back to that. I would call us back that just because things aren't hard or hard doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue them. I mean, in fact, just because things are hard means that we should pursue them. Uh, so coming to a consensus, coming to an understanding of who we want to be in community, as a nation, um, in our towns, in our schools, is one of the hardest things that we can do as a people. And so I would call us to take that challenge on um, and help our schools reflect uh, what we want to be um, so that our kids can be who they deserve to be. Mm. David, thank you so much for sharing part of who you are with us today for the Learning Future podcast. It's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Learning Future podcast. 
To find out more about our work, drop into thelearningfuture.com and follow us at Learning Future on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. Here's to building a world of thriving learners together.